<clears throat> All right, Matt, how are you, man? Uh, our next episode of uh, Going Live with, with Good Soil. We were at a conference last week and got to meet each other personally for the first time and I think 11, 10 or 11 months of working together is pretty, pretty cool conference, except I came back with uh, a little COVID, unfortunately. So I'm a little out of it. I hope, uh, hope that everyone excuses me from a little slow today. Sorry about that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great to finally meet you in person. And yeah, it was, it was kind of hilarious. I think we mentioned this uh, at the beginning of last week, although we had some technical difficulties, but you thought I was like, I don't know, six inches shorter than I actually am or something like that. So that was kind of funny. That was like your, your very first taller. reaction. Yeah, I was like, man, yeah. you're taller. You're so tall. I was like, I was surprised. So it was, it was my first react. Yeah, I admit, uh, it was funny. It's yeah. a, it's a funny time though, and we can, you know, essentially be working together on a, on a business for almost a full year without having actually physically met each other. But uh, it's good to kind of get that milestone out of the way. And we had a lot of, a lot of good times, and uh, kind of interesting going to a conference like that. It almost feels a little bit outdated um, mm -hmm. in this day and age to have a like a physical conference and. In fact, I mean, we gave um, a, a presentation about Tesla while we were there, which had, I don't know, like 10 people. And it was like a really good conversation kind of back yeah. and forth with some of the audience. But then, you know, we do like an impromptu live stream about Tesla earnings and you get I don't know, 500 people showing up. So there's there's yeah. definitely some some benefit to having having um, just uh, complete like widespread distribution through the through the Internet to people who are interested in the topic rather than just kind of whoever can make it to a, to a conference. So. I think it kind of reinforced our commitment to to be kind of more open on on the social media platforms and, and prioritize that as opposed to like kind of the traditional way of managing a hedge fund. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, it was good for us to see and know that's probably not the forum for us, that type of traditional in-person conference. Uh, so it was good to know that. And, and I'm glad we did it. We got to meet each other and it was a fun getaway anyway. Uh, we got to meet another uh, colleague, uh, Eric from Worm Capital, who interviewed us recently. That was fun. And uh, even got a night of poker in with him. That was that was cool. So anyway, let's move on to the topics of what, we're, what, what people are here to listen to us talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the macro market first, we usually started off with talk a little bit about the market volatility, macro market, any news headlines. And then we move into like Tesla and other stocks and take Q&A. That's sort of the outline of, of this for the next 45 minutes or an hour. So the market volatility, what's your thoughts, man? I mean, it's been up and down. We had a big up day yesterday, last day of January, today, February. It's, you know, we're at least we're not, re, you know, bouncing back down, which is good. It wasn't like a, doesn't seem like it was a dead cat bounce yesterday. It seems like, yeah, come people yeah, are coming kept, back to the market. I, like every, every week in January, it seemed like, oh my gosh, it's like another, <clears throat> you know, down 10% day or down 10% a week, every week, it seemed. Um, so that was you, you, that that trend just seemed to kind of be uninterrupted. It was just a, a lot of fear, obviously, around, you know, macro factors, particularly, you know, inflation and, and kind of um, Fed balance sheet shrinking and, and what uh, the repercussions of what that would do uh, to capital markets. So um, it seems like we've, you know, maybe reached a, a point of at least temporary stability. Uh, but I think the the thing that markets are, are taking into effect now, uh, if you look at like the the yield curves, the difference between short term and long term yield curves, is uh, kind of pricing in. It looks like about five different uh, twenty five basis points increases that uh, to like to the uh, Fed funds rate this year. Um, so that's kind of where we are right now, and that's that's I think more than uh, people were expecting uh, maybe a month ago. So I think that's why your growth stocks in particular have been pounded so much. Um, so, and, and it does make a pretty big difference. I mean, you know, just as a, 
maybe to give like a, a sensitivity analysis to people who are or maybe not as familiar with with the topic. Um, you know, I, I've uh, I did an evaluation like a year ago for Tesla um, where I came up with like a, a twenty nine hundred dollar uh, price target. Um, but that's that's highly dependent on the different interest rates um, that mm -hmm. that you know you you use because that's a kind of an input into the cost of capital um, assumption. So um, if if you actually kind of increase the rate to uh, oh geez now I've lost my sheet here I, I had it up a second ago but you, uh, the the high level number though is like if you go from about one point five percent discount rate which is you know what it was a year ago on the on like the ten year treasury um, and if you you know, add one percent to that, then it takes off about like six hundred dollars off your share price. And if you add two percent, then it takes off about nine hundred dollars. And so, um, you know, then if you go you know crazy and say you add like five percent to it, then it you know more than cuts the share price in half, uh, just because the the cash flows when you're doing a discounted cash flow valuation are are so heavily weighted to uh, to the future. So uh, obviously that's only with one model. I mean, depending on your your inputs and your assumptions, the answer will be different. Um, but I, I think that's what you're seeing here is like, oh, gosh, if people thought it was kind of inconceivable that that the, the rate rate might be three and a half or four um, percent in a couple of years time. But I think the market is giving an increased probability waiting to that potential outcome as kind of a means of fighting inflation. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of very interesting to see the, the sentiment shift so quickly. But what yeah. are your what are your kind of thoughts on this dynamic environment we have going on right now? Yeah, I mean, I do agree that, um, you know, with generally what everything you said there, and I, I think the, you know, five rate hikes for this year being priced in is sort of priced in now. I think there's a lot of people, you know, still scared that, you know, thinking that the actual action of the rate hike is going to cause the market to go down. But I don't think that's the case anymore. I think the anticipation of the rate hikes going, you know, five rate hikes this year is what made the market go down. That anticipation has already happened now. Uh, so I think maybe when the rate hikes actually happen, uh, then the market might actually start going up, you know, sort of like, you know, sell on the rumor, buy on the news kind of thing, you know. So, you know, it just seems that um, unless there's signaling for more, even more aggressive hikes this year, I got to think that, you know, we've hit some kind of local low in the in the macro market. Um, you know, that's that's what I'm thinking is more probable. You know, I, I could certainly be wrong. There could be a Russia-Ukraine invasion that causes all kinds of uh, uncertainty and energy prices and spirals to the whole macro market somehow. So there's other things that could happen. But in a, you know when I'm just talking when I'm just thinking about the interest rate uh, environment and speculation around that, I feel like the worst of it is now priced in. Um, so we'll just see how how the next uh, month especially uh, plays out because I think we need. A solid you know a week or a couple of weeks of sort of like at least a flat market to kind of feel more comfortable about that because for several weeks here we you know there'd be like maybe one flat day then the market's down five percent then another flat day <laughs> or up one percent down five percent you know or at least the growth in tech stocks at least that's what we focus yeah. on so it's well, almost it, like it's it, own index the growth in tech stocks i feel like the arc arkk you could think of it as almost it is kind of crazy. I mean, like if you look at you know both um, to take two names that that we talk a lot about here, uh, both Roblox and Rocket Lab, they went from all time ho all time highs to all time lows in a matter of like two months. Um, yeah. it, it was like a remarkable turnaround. And so that's that's clearly not based on you know, like fundamentals, and that's clearly not based on like a, an increase in the discount rate from 
you know, an expected 2% to an expected, you know, 3% or three and a quarter percent like that, that doesn't drive that kind of movement. So, you know, yeah. there's, there's clearly an amount of kind of panic and yeah, where is the bottom? Um, you know, I think if you're, I think you're right. If, if we do kind of consolidate around here for a week or two or three, um, then I think it will be a bullish sign for that capital that we've talked about. That's kind of sitting on the sidelines to, to maybe reemerge and, and, and be deployed into some of these names. But, um, I think people are a little bit, nobody wants to be the, the first to sit, you know, call the bottom and, you know, start to pull your capital. We saw a little bit of that with, uh, like Bill Ackman, uh, kind of calling the, the low on Netflix and we saw that kind of rebounded nicely. So, uh, there, there may be some more kind of one-off names like that, that hopefully kind of turn the tide, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, and earnings this week is going to be a big, yeah. I mean, Google, I think is today earnings, Facebook is this week and there's a lot of big names giving earnings this week. And, you know, all the smaller growth tech companies will probably give earnings the next few weeks after. So, you know, as long as earnings are strong, which I anticipate they, sh they should be like Microsoft, Apple, and Tesla were, then uh, I think there's, you know, I'm, I'm feeling comfortable. You know, there, there there's definitely skittishness in, skittishness in the market, but uh, medium to long term, I feel I feel comfortable. Yeah, I mean, this this is something we were talking a little bit about offline too, but it's like, you know, the the confidence in, in you know, at least the portfolio that, that we manage from, from here is like, it, it's a lot easier to kind of like the upside potential from here versus maybe where we were in, in November. Um, so yes. as, as like uh, painful as maybe the short term, I'm sure everyone's feeling this in their personal accounts as well. You know, everything's been, yeah. you know, even if you're in, you know, more safe sectors than, than maybe we are here at Good Soil. Um, you know, I think everyone's seeing right across their, their personal portfolios, but you know, the, the growth stocks I think have been hit incredibly hard. Um, and, but I do think one of the things that we're, that's going to happen is like, there, there was a lot of froth in like kind of crappy SPACs and like companies that didn't really have a lot of, yeah, you know, a lot of story being, stocks yeah. being like, you know, two to $5 billion stocks. And it, like, people just don't know much about them, but they're like, oh, this company has space in their name or like, oh, this company yeah. says the metaverse is going to be awesome. And so it's like, yeah, right. Yeah. They've got to be at least worth a billion. <laughs> so yeah. There, yeah. there was a lot of that kind of nonsense going on. Um, and so I think in a way this 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 kind of downturn will be healthy because it kind of sets the the bar lower for everyone and so then you'll you'll be able to more clearly differentiate between okay who's actually innovating who actually has great technology uh and and who is just kind of great at doing a deal and throwing buzzwords around and, and raising capital because those companies will not be successful uh even in the medium term i think i agree yeah there's lots of good sales pitches out there with the SPACs that are you know easy to buy into and definitely there's a lot of hype and um uh, very few of them will come true, in my opinion. So we're seeing a lot of those SPACs kind of die. A lot of the EV, you know, SPACs even. Yeah, I mean, that's just an example, you know. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens in the long term with those. But, uh, yeah, SPACs beware, you know. <laughs> Most of them are very – even though Rocket Lab was a SPAC, right? But some SPACs, you know, we, we think there's legitimacy to. But the vast majority, you have to really be careful. So, uh so yeah, so I mean, I'm moving on to Tesla. That you know, we haven't had a uh, a real call since the, you know, we haven't had a chat since the fourth quarter quarter earnings release. We had a brief, you know, on the spot fly chat, you know, right after the earnings release before the call. But then there was the earnings call with Elon Musk and the product roadmap update being that there's no real update. <laughs> like we're just sticking with these models. We're sticking with the Model Three and the Model Y, and we're just sort of pump as many of those out we can this year, basically. That was sort of the update I, I interpreted because just demand is crazy. Um, 
And uh, so what, what were your thoughts on the earnings call and the results now that you've had some time to digest, Matt? You have, you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, so we had, uh, you know, kind of revised our, our earnings model going into it um, with some more bullish assumptions based on, on uh, the increase in deliveries that we got from the production and delivery report. So I think we were expecting something, something resembling a, a blowout. And, and this, this quarter clearly was not that. Um, you had kind of shrinking automotive gross margins, which was, was kind of a surprise. And when I went back and did kind of like a, a post-mortem on the financials and kind of compared them against my model, um, you know, I, I modeled in or when I uh, updated the, the results in, in my financial model, um, I'm coming up with like a declining FSD take rate, at least in Q4, but also kind of lower automotive gross margins on top of that. So, so to me, that's kind of a surprise that you'd have uh, with so many more vehicles being produced in Q4 than, than in Q3 uh, and with the price hikes, which had been layered in over the second half of, of 2021. Uh, to, so to see kind of declining gross margins, even like the, the core manufacturing margin, which is what I call it when you back out full self-driving credits and everything, uh, that was a little bit surprising to me. And so I think that was, uh, th there's reason to have kind of tempered expectations going forward into 2022 for that reason, uh, which, which Zach Kirkhorn clearly said on, on the call as well. So that was probably the biggest surprise to me is, is you know, not only was there not margin improvement, but it was actually a little bit worse than, than had been than they posted in Q3. Um, but I also think what Elon and Zach are saying on the call is completely true, uh, which is that as like the current financials don't really matter that much um, in the context of, of full self-driving. Mm -hmm. um, and this was, this was kind of my original core thesis, you know, back in 2019 when I kind of went all in on Tesla uh, was like, if you have a, a increase in take rate from, I think it was 29% back then when they had disclosed it, um, and so I was doing some modeling and say like, okay, if you take that up to 40%, just cause it's like the coolest new feature that everyone's going to want to have, um, it, it just like explodes the, the, like the, uh, financials of the company in the like, kind of crazy ways. Um, and, and I think that dynamic, it's actually over the past two years, it's gone the opposite way. Take rates actually gone down. Um, but in my mind, that's, that's kind of good news because the, the core manufacturing is way more efficient than anyone thought was possible. And we still have all this kind of upside um, but, uh, improvement possibility when full self-driving does improve to the point where people are like, oh my gosh, this is the new must-have feature. Um, so like the, we were talking about this a little bit, I think on our, our call last week, but the, if you take the operating cash flow, which is just like the, the cash flow that the, the uh, business generates before um, like investments in CapEx into new factories. And you divide that by the, the number of vehicles that they delivered, it was something like $15,000 per vehicle, which is an, a crazy number. Uh, but if you, that's basically equivalent, it's slightly higher, but it's basically equivalent to like the full self-driving price. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so you can imagine a scenario where let's say take rate goes from 10, 15%, somewhere like that right now <clears throat> to, close to 100%, then you'd essentially be doubling the um, the profitability per vehicle. So uh, the the improvement potential there is is crazy. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of, well, nobody is really um, taking into consideration, at least on, on Wall Street, in terms of what does the 2022 financials look like? So uh, that's, yeah. that's a real catalyst, and especially if they keep increasing the price over time and uh, people start to give the, the like the robo-taxi autonomy um bull case credit and then there's all this this upside on top of that so um yeah. I, I think no matter how you look at it 2022 is shaping up to be a beat even with 
plugging in some more kind of conservative uh, automotive gross margin numbers in, in my model. So that, that was encouraging to me, I think. Yeah, Wall Street just has no idea how to value the full self-driving. I mean, they, you know, they have their models of how they value auto companies and Tesla's an auto company with, you know, that to most of them, most of the dinosaurs on Wall Street, you know, the institutional firms, you know, the big shops that have a lot of money they manage and, you know, whether it's Fidelity on the buy side or sell side research or, or you know, I just feel like there's... A huge advantage for retail investors or individual investors like us, you know, that, you know, can make up their own mind without having analysts use kind of traditional modeling techniques of, you know, auto manufacturers and such. So, you know, I think th this is just an enigma. Tesla's an enigma. No one knows how to value it, you know, and it's just kind of like, it's kind of crazy. It's just sitting out there for us at, uh, in the open for all of us to kind of pick up shares at this current valuation when, uh, we, we all know full self-driving is pretty imminent at this point. <laughs> and like you said, the, 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 it, like, like Elon said, it's nutty or something. He said, it's just the financials are nutty. <laughs> and, and, and I believe him, you know, I, I mean, there's no reason not to believe Elon. You know, there's some people that just, it's crazy. Like when I see people that are bearish on Tesla or Elon, it comes down to two things, right? Either number one, either they think Elon is intentionally a liar, you know, intentionally deceiving people or number two, they think they're smarter than Elon. And I don't think that's the case for, for, you know, for anyone I've seen that's, you know, even a smart person that's, you know, sort of bearish on Tesla or Elon, you know, like, it's just funny how I can't think of another reason why people would be bearish or not believe what he's saying, you know, they, but I believe him, you know, the financials are about to get really nutty and uh, 2022 is likely, but worst case 2023, you know, full self-driving is, is basically here. Um, and the beta users, you have the beta version. You see how fast it's it progress. You told me yourself, you know, that it's progressing super fast and surprising you. And that's just in the last couple of months. And you were kind of skeptical when you first got it even. And you've seen big improvements. So, yeah, I mean, wh wh what's your personal use case on full self-driving? That's it. That's the real, you know, canary in the coal mine for Tesla's financials is, you know, people using the full self-driving beta. Are they really seeing progress or not? Yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of crazy how, how quickly it has improved. So, I mean, it, it, I only got it in October and it was, you know, I've been pretty public about how bad it was, honestly, it like, it would just like kind of block intersections in a strange way. And it was super kind of erratic around stops and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, and I just, I think it was in this last probably 10.9 where I just all of a sudden became really surprised. I was like, Oh, it's, it's like seeing things that I didn't think it could see. And it was like handling turns much more naturally. Uh, I still intervene a lot. So I don't want to kind of give the impression that it's like, oh, it's basically like ready for autonomy tomorrow. And and there's still a lot of stuff that it has to handle. Uh, like, frankly, on, on like there's a lot of snow where I am right now. And it mm -hmm. does not handle that very well. So there's, there's still a long way to go for sure. But it's like the, the things that were making it so annoying to use like a month ago are like completely gone now for the most part. So it's just it's like kind of astonishing to see that like uh, just the, the the huge pain points are, are gone now. And so it's like now the pain points I'm getting acclimated to the new pain points. And I'm like, oh, it's like yeah. turning out of a parking lot. It's, it's not very good because it doesn't know yeah. it needs to get in like the left lane versus the right lane. So it kind of goes in the middle and blocks. people. So I'm like, all right, I'll take over that. But then once it actually turns, handles it perfectly. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the goalposts, I think, are always moving on the, what does it need to do to, to get to the point where it's like actually level four, like Elon says. Um, but but I honestly think like 
um, we've hit something of a, of a local maximum. And I had a tweet about this earlier today, um, but like they've been working on this full stack rewrite for, I don't know, it's gotta be close to a year now, I think, right? Yeah, like a long time, yeah. A very long time. So like all- It's basically gonna be vision, it's gonna be vision only for highway and local city driving, right? It's gonna combine it all to be vision it's, only. Is that the local, it's, is that the stack rewrite, I think? Yeah, it's it's that, but I think it's also kind of introducing the, the time element to it for the first time. So my understanding hmm. anyways, and maybe we should get James Dalma on here to kind of yeah. uh, clarify the areas where we're wrong, but- um, you know, it's looking at all the frames individually right now, and and the, the software is kind of making driving decisions based on that. Uh, whereas in the, the rewrite, which is V11 is supposed to come out this month, which will have that full stack rewrite, according to Elon, um, you, you're going to be threading together all the different camera streams and introducing like a time bait, time um, uh, aspect to it, where you're kind of tracking these objects over time more, it, more so than, than they're doing right now. Um, and so my understanding is that should be kind of like the backbone that all of the future kind of iterations work off of. Uh, so once that kind of rolls out and we can see how it goes and we can see how quickly the, um, the improvements happen on that version of it, um, I think it's, we'll have, have a much better idea whether or not we can really trust Elon on this kind of level four by the end of this year, um, comment, which he seems so strong on, but, um. So I'm, I'm very, very curious to see that once it finally rolls out. Yeah. I mean, I think we'll have a period of time where um, it's going to be very comfortable, like sitting in the highway, the car drives itself and I have to sit there. I can't get out and go to another seat, obviously, but it drives itself, you know, the whole time on, on a highway and I'm comfortable with it. So I think mm -hmm. we'll have a, a, a significant period of time where it's like that everywhere. Um, and hopefully that's uh, what he means. I think that's what he means. And, with full self-driving ready capable and you know maybe it could be a while before there's some laws passed or there's some enablement in certain cities in miami let's say or some place in arizona where they say okay now tesla can drive everywhere without a driver in the car uh so we'll, we'll see how long that takes and then how long that catches on but i think people will like all the i can imagine all the doordash drivers all the uber eats uber drivers you know all those people will definitely want it you know like for their job like they can do other things and just let the car drive itself to do everything for them you know so you'll have a huge implementation of people that drive for a living i think uh first and then you and i people like us will all start buying it too and um just a matter of time then as it gets better and better quickly after that too with more data and and it's it's gonna be it's gonna take off yeah yeah, and I think there's there's maybe this um, false dichotomy some people have, not you, but uh, some people out there that's like, oh, well, if robo-taxis don't happen, it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. and, and I think yeah. that's not at all true. Like, even if it's just the best possible convenience feature um, yeah. and, pe and people love it, that's still a huge um, kind of financial impact to the company. So just, just for example, I'm uh, grabbing my Q4 numbers for this year. My base case assumption, which has a 19% full self-driving take rate, has earnings per share of $4.93. Uh, but if I assume that that's 100%, um, which sounds aggressive, but let's just say Tesla prioritizes FSD orders over others, and they've got like a six to 12 month backlog. That to me, that's a very uh, possible outcome. Um, but it goes from 4.95 in earnings in that one quarter to $7.85. So like huge, huge financial implications um, to, to the company. And you don't, you don't need 
just like be solving autonomy completely or you, like you don't need a robo taxi fleet and regulatory approval to do that all you would really need is just for the functionality to be good enough that you can um have uh, 500,000 you know to 600,000 orders where full self-driving is attached and then you just prioritize those and all of a sudden people see oh gosh like that's so cool that your car can drive that and then they tell their friends and then that friend orders it so uh i think there's there's a real possibility that just the full self-driving as a convenience feature can itself kind of um really have a crazy financial impact to, to tesla yeah absolutely yeah, it's exciting, exciting. Um, so let's. Why don't we go to some? Is there anything else you want to talk about or unpack with uh, Tesla fourth quarter results or the call or anything? Or should we just go to Q and A? Any, any other thoughts about it, Matt? And now they, uh, maybe I'll just say there was one kind of mystery item um, in there, which which was a little confusing to me, which was the long-term deferred revenue balance spiked by about $900 million. Uh, oh, I saw your quarter. tweet on that. Did you get any good answers on that? Or anything? No, no, there were, pe people had so a lot of theories this. out there. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, uh, it's gonna get like really nerding into accounting details. So I'll maybe try to keep it at a high level, but um, it, essentially Tesla has this deferred revenue balance, which you know, a lot of it is full self-driving. So you pay for full self-driving, let's just say $10,000 for, um, uh, for example, Tesla could only book about 5,000 of that, five to 6,000 as, as revenue because they hadn't delivered all of the features to the end users. So per gap accounting rules, um, the, you know, the, they, they got the 10,000 of cash. So that goes onto their balance sheet as, as a cash item. Yeah. Uh, they can book, let's say 6,000 as revenue. So that goes into the equity side of the balance sheet, but then they have this liability for the balance, which is $4,000 in that, in that case. Uh, so it's it's a liability classified as deferred revenue, and so whenever they they deliver that feature set, it it you know it wipes out of the liability side and goes to the equity side. It's kind of the, the journal entry of how that how that works. Um, but this in this one quarter, you saw a huge spike. It went from I think it was like two million to or sorry two billion to two point nine billion. So a huge spike, and it was yeah. all on what's called the long term portion of of deferred revenue. So. Uh, it's revenue that they don't expect to recognize um, in the next 12 months. So it's kind of a mystery to me who or what group of customers would be paying $900 million of cash uh, for an, something that's not going to be delivered for 12 months or more. Um, so people had a lot of ideas, but to me, there, there's not a clear kind of um, answer that would satisfy all the different things like it can't be uh, an increase in just full self-driving take rate because the current portion of that would have flowed through gross margin sorry i got construction going on here it's a little that's okay it's a little bit loud um it's okay so yeah the, to, it seems like the the best possible answer i think i've heard so far and, and even then i don't really like it um but is like maybe there's some amount of deposits for either semis or uh large battery pack orders well, Roadsters, to me, that, that one doesn't make sense to me because you'd have to have a huge influx of orders just in Q4 and, and like $900 million worth to increase the balance of that amount of Q4 over Q3 doesn't really make yeah. sense. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It could, it, to me, it seems like it'd have to be something long-term, like a huge semi-order or um, a huge fleet order or some sort. A huge fleet order or it could be something on the energy Maybe side, but even then it's like, who, who would pay $900 million so it could be or, some big order they took in that's sort of under wraps they haven't disclosed, but it's on their it's showing up on their statements the cash they, they took in. 
it could be yeah it, it, it could be that but then it, it's it's hard to say like who who's going to pay that much um like normally payment terms yeah. are like i don't know one to five percent up front you know and then like there's like a milestones along the way so yeah. like if you imagine it was a huge stationary storage deal for example why would yeah. somebody pay 900 million up front which is I see some people in the chat. Entire energy sales. Some people in the chat saying Hertz, but I think they already uh, promised to deliver all the cars to Hertz by the end of 2022, um, and right. they're already delivering them. And I, my understanding is Hertz is just paying it as they get them, just like any other customer, as far as yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, so like the Hertz deal would that wouldn't make sense because it would it would be both current and it wouldn't go into deferred revenue. So yeah, yeah. I, I think. Some sort of long-term deal might make sense. I mean, the other potential thing would be like maybe there's like some sort of prepayment for like access to supercharges from another auto OEM or something like that. Mm. But again, that to me that doesn't make sense that it would be long-term and rather than short-term. So yeah, just throw yeah. that out there. If anyone has any ideas, let me know. Let us know in the comments. But yeah. I haven't seen any good theories right now that kind of um, explain what would cause that huge amount of cash to come into the company without uh, with something that's not going to be delivered for twelve plus months. Yeah, that's interesting. Mystery. Well, we'll get to the bottom of it and report back when we figure it out one of these days. Yeah, that's that's a good one. So, yeah, with that, let's just go to the Q&A and get to as many questions and answers as we can, questions as we can in the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah. All right. These are people that are putting their questions on the Twitter thread or the YouTube live um, stream that Alec is uh, posting. So from TG. Is it true that the new Model 3 coming out of Austin will be 2,100 pounds less than the current configuration? You know, I, I don't know uh, if that's true or not. Have you heard anything about that, Matt? Uh, no, I haven't heard anything about that. Uh, to me, that sounds unlikely. I mean, that's a huge, that, that would be a huge mass removal. So I, I don't know how they could possibly do that. Um, yeah. So I, I, I hadn't heard that rumor, but to me, that sounds unlikely. Yeah, and I think Austin's going to do just really exclusively Model Ys initially. I'm not sure the Model 3s will be coming out of there anytime soon, but maybe. Yeah. Um, from Alan Court, finance videos. Question: Where do you, where do you, where do you the average year-over-year -year revenue growth for Roblox for 2032? Hmm. Average of 40% plus year-over-year. -year. I haven't projected. I don't think we know what the heck's going on in 2032 for any company. <laughs> He's hardly even Tesla. So that's pretty far out in the future. 2030, 10 years from now, um, you know, the world is going to be very different. You know, I, we, we go, we try to maybe think about five years out. And with Tesla, we try to go a little further out theoretically with the bot and all that stuff. But for virtually every other company, it's hard to really go more than, uh, you know, five or six or seven year, you know, think that far ahead, especially even with Rocket Lab. Uh, so we'll just have to go to the next question here. Let's see. From life at 130 beats per minute on Twitter, is your MicroStrategy option trade still profitable after the recent Bitcoin crash, or did it break down at some point? Yeah, so we actually um, stopped doing that that trade. I don't know what was it like October, November. Yeah, yeah. it's probably after October. Um, before the crash, yeah, yeah, before the crash. So um, thankfully, we didn't. Um, kind of continue the it. bag on on, on uh, those shares at like an $800 cost basis or something like that. Uh, it might be a good time to, to start that back up though, again, yeah. honestly. Uh, yeah, but theoretically we, the trade, the way it was with selling the options weekly and the implied volatility, theoretically, we, we instead of losing, you know, if we held the shares and the stock, you know, MicroStrategy dropped by 50%, you know, instead of 
us losing 50% on that because we're selling options around it. We might've lost like 20 or 25% instead of 50% in such a short period of time. That's theoretically the idea of it. We haven't really, we could, I guess, back test it to see what actually would have happened if we kept doing it. But uh, we did, luckily we sort of stopped it uh, in October, November. Yeah. What were you going to say, Matt? No, just, just exactly that. So yeah, okay. you know, we, we, um, might be a good time to so. consider it again. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> From Dan Mac 51 on Twitter, Sark versus Ark <laughs> in 2022. Uh, yeah. I mean, 2021 was the year of Sark. 2022, I think, is the year maybe Ark uh, comes back. I don't know. That's my guess. What do you think, Matt? Yeah. And maybe for, for those who are, who are not familiar, there's this short Ark. Uh, I don't know if it's an ETF or a fund or whatever. It but, is an ETF. Um, yeah. It's an ETF. Okay. Yeah. So essentially, like some people are it's like, you know, they're smarter than Elon Musk syndrome. So there's, there's also smarter than <laughs> Kathy Wood syndrome. Yeah. Um, so people are like, yeah. I don't want to think for myself. I just want to think that Kathy Wood is an idiot. So I'll do the opposite of whatever she does and it'll probably yeah. make money. So no, like, yeah. uh, I, I, I agree. I think ARKK is going to, I think there's potential for, for ARKK to do really, really well this year, but. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's going to be driven by macro. I think like if, if macro deteriorates or like if there's a huge kind of um, GDP crash or something like that, which I, I don't think is likely, but there's at least um, um, a thoughtful minor or a thoughtful cohort of, of kind of economists or commentators out there who, who think that like the sky is falling. And so if yeah. that happens, sure, SARK will, SARK will, will, will do really well. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I'd put my money on Kathy. I think she's got a lot of great uh, insights into macro. And the more I've been hearing her kind of speak, the more I've tended to think, okay, I don't agree with everything that she says, but I think her points um, seem to have a little bit more validity than than uh, kind of the doomsday economists out there. Yep. From Scott Open Dries on Twitter, what metrics ratios do you find most important to value a company at a maturity stage, such as Rocket Labs? Hmm. Um, Matt, you want to take a first stab at, at that one? Yeah. So, um, just from a from a pure valuation standpoint, it's like you know they're 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 burning cash. Their revenue is small relative to their enterprise value or their market cap. Um, and so, like, if you're looking backwards only in the in the financials, there's there's not going to be a lot to like. Um, so you know, as much as like a, of a technical kind of like financial analyst. And, um, I, I love digging into companies, financials. It's really not, um, the best use of time for a company like rocket lab, to be honest with you. Um, with, with a company like rocket lab, I think you have to kind of take off your financial analyst hat to some degree. You can't be an idiot about it, but you've got to take that off a little bit and look at the market that they're in and look at their technology, look at their leadership, um, and kind of look at it almost, um, more like a VC than than like a, yeah. a normal Wall Street analyst. So like w when you, when it does come time to, to um, do evaluation, which we've done here, um, you, you, uh, like a revenue multiple is, is probably the best that you can do because trying to assume what gross margins are going to be in 2027 and like that's a that's a losing game. You're going to be drastically wrong. Um, so like a revenue multiple is is the right approach with like a, a high cost of equity discount rate. So that's what we did. Um, but really, I think what's much more important from an investing standpoint is, is just going to be looking at the leadership team and, and how do they how do they grow to be, you know, 10x, you know, their their size on like a, on a launch cadence basis or whatever um, going going forward. What's the ultimate, um, 
goal that they're trying to solve. That's what I'd say about that. Yeah. And what I think you said, Matt, that is key, st sticks out is like, you got to look at some of these companies as almost like a venture fund, you know, it, it, the total addressable market for rocket lab is evolving quickly, you know? And, and so traditional analysts, they're not used to looking at a brand new kind of total addressable market emerging, you know, the space industry, you know, is, we think is is something special that's really emerging later the second half of this decade especially but you know rocket lab is going to play a big part of that and so from a venture it's almost like a venture you know i guess a perspective as a venture fund like you're you're putting you're investing in a company with a strong founder uh that has a, a you know stable footing already in a space that's growing really fast and it's going to be a big part of the future of that total addressable market i don't know it's kind of like wishy-washy words I'm throwing out there, but, <laughs> but, but you have to really just believe in, I guess, this, this space that they're growing into and, and think that the space industry is going to be, uh, you know, much bigger than it is now in, in five or 10 years. Yeah. Well, even uh, Deutsche Bank, who like, I kind of view as like not particularly forward thinking in a lot of, of uh, yeah. regards that, you know, they're calling it one of their top picks for 2022 and they expect the stock I saw to that go up 120%. Yeah. So, um, yeah, even, even though it's hard to, to model this stuff financially, I think like at a bare minimum as a financial analyst, if you say, okay, I don't want to put a technical hat on, I don't know anything about space. You can say, okay, rocket lab is worth, or, um, SpaceX is worth a hundred billion dollars reportedly. Uh, what is the second place worth? Um, yeah. And so it's probably worth more than 2% of, of, of that. SpaceX's cap, right? value. Like, yeah. 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 So, so that's maybe like one kind of uh, rudimentary technique you could have is to say, okay, like who, what are other companies in the space being valued at? And if, like, yeah. if, if they really are the clear second place, which I think it's, it's indisputable. Like maybe yeah. if you're really backward looking, you could say like ULA is, is above yeah. Rocket yeah. Lab, but that's like, oh, I, I don't think yeah. that's, that's accurate no. at all. So. Yeah. 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 All right. From Harshal Owalakar. With Tesla expanding the insurance business to cover 80% of the U.S. population, how do you scope the competitive landscape for Lemonade or Metrolink auto insurance? Metro Mile, I'm, I'm Metro sure. Metro Mile, I assume. I think that yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's funny. We have a really cool like uh, two-minute video coming out shortly. We'll post soon uh, that we, we put together kind of describing in a nutshell a lot of the case for, for Lemonade. But I think... Um, uh, Tesla expanding insurance business to cover 80% of the, I'm not, I mean, 80% of the U S population for them to have 80% of auto sales in the U S that's, that's a pretty big assumption. I'm get, I think he's, he must be meaning 80% of States or something like that. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you scope the competitive landscape? I mean, I think, uh, I think Tesla proving out auto insurance and disrupting it in their own right for their own cars is actually good for lemonade. It just shows like, Hey, Tesla can do this. Lemonade's going to be doing it too for everything that's not a Tesla, you know. So I, I think it's actually really good um, for for Lemonade. The more Tesla gets into this business, um, it kind of like you know Tesla can break down some of the initial, you know, like they already had fights with California's, you know, gov, you know, some, you know, Elon's already been tweeting back and forth with some someone in California's uh, insurance regulator industry saying they want telematics and insurance guy was like, no, we're fighting for customer privacy or I don't know, something like that. So Tesla's breaking down some of these walls ahead of time for Lemonade to easily kind of, 
you know, piggyback off of too. So I think they're, I think it's complementary. It's sort of like EVs, like the more EVs you have out there, that's not a Tesla. It's actually good for Tesla EV anyway, because then it brings more awareness to this new EV industry. It brings more awareness to the new type of auto insurance, you know, calculations and such, I think. What do you think? Yeah. Like, like to, to me, like Tesla's not going to have anything close to like even 50% of like the total automotive insurance market, you know, in the United States. Um, I mean, yeah. even once they're kind of at scale at 20 million units a year, and there's a large fleet out there, uh, there's still going to be plenty of room for other insurance providers. Um, so, so the question in, in my mind is not like who wins kind of one upstart in the insurance space, Tesla versus one upstart in the insurance space, you know, Lemonade Metro Mile. It's okay. How much are the incumbents going to lose, and how yeah. do they transition to, like, like the future is inevitably going to be like risk-based insurance uh, premiums, you know, based on the in, the individual driving characteristics of the underlying insured users. Like that's just very clearly like the the right way, the most appropriate way to um, to risk assess to underwrite insurance, automotive insurance. Um, and so in, in, my, in my mind, the two who are leading on that are, are really Metro Mile and Tesla, which is just starting this. You know, there, there's some others that have like a little black box that you can put in for like three months and get a raid and then they take it out and they ship that box off to somebody else. Um, but to, to really have great telematics that are always adjusting and your rates are getting adjusted based on your, your driving behavior continuously, um, you, you need not only good telematics, but also like frankly, probably a, a bit of um, like AI and, and like how, how Tesla uh, developed their safety score. Like there are so many variables to look at which ones are, are most correlated with accidents. And you need a huge data set and you need to understand how to mine that data set appropriately. Um, and so you need like some sort of AI component in that as well. And so it's, it's just, it's not clear to me that the, you know, insurance incumbents are moving in that direction whatsoever. So I, I think there's yeah. there's room for <laughs> Tesla and Lemonade to, to eat the lunch of a lot of, a lot of the incumbents. Um, mm -hmm. which is going to be very bad news for, <laughs> for them. Yeah. Yep. Um, second question from Harshal Awalakar is when Tesla licenses full self-driving to other OEMs in the future, it would be logical next step for Tesla to expand its insurance to other OEMs with the advantage of telemetrics from full self-driving. Any thoughts? Hmm. Matt, what do you, I mean, it's, it's kind <laughs> of in there's a presumption in that question that Tesla would license FSD to other OEMs. Uh, and if they do do that, then, then I kind of agree. Uh, but they would essentially need to have the same hardware set uh, that, that Tesla is using. Um, and just based on my experience with like the, the big companies, like they don't want to admit that they're not the technological leaders. They don't want to hand over, you know, a core piece of, of a, like their their technology or their, of their platform to a competitor within the space. So even though I, I do think it would be in the other OEMs best interest to license FSD and, you know, let Tesla do the insurance for it as well. I just, I don't think the agents who run those companies <laughs> will come to that conclusion and actually license it. So I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope they're a little bit more forward thinking than I'm giving them credit for. But, um, you know, my sense is they'd rather like lose billions investing in crews or something like that than, uh, you know, license from Tesla and, and, you know, be paying out thousands of dollars for each vehicle they sell. 
Yeah, and Elon said he theoretically they do it. It would be all EVs. I think he he would license it. But also the other um, the auto manufacturers, you know, they'd have to build their cars like pretty much identical to Tesla in some respects. Like cameras in the exact same placement, probably. Right. You know, they'd have to. You know, Tesla doesn't want to like use its engineering resources to like necessarily like work with adjusting their platform to fit you know, another auto manufacturer's building style of building out the sensor suite or cameras and such. So it's, it's going to be tricky. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't know in, in a, if there's a pragmatic or practical way that's going to happen, you know, um, but, you know, theoretically Tesla's open to it, but I just, like you said, man, I just don't, I can't see the other players kind of just giving in a hundred percent to Tesla and say, oh, yeah, you give us the specs of exactly how to design our car and we'll just do it the way you say without even trying to push back or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like no other car company is even thinking that vision only is the right approach to autonomy, let alone like agreeing to Tesla's kind of hardware suite and full self-driving computer and everything. So there mm -hmm. are, I think, I think several um, obstacles that need to be overcome before, you know, you can kind of consider this as a, as a potential outcome. Yeah. From David Kasman, does full self-driving and Optimus increasing possible total addressable market mean that good soil might now weight more heavily towards Tesla? Yeah, I mean, it certainly does. Uh, Matt and I talk about this stuff frequently. Um, you know, we view Tesla as our highest conviction name. We already weighted very heavily towards Tesla. Um, so, you know, the Optimus thing is still, you know, I'm a huge fan of the bot and, and I can't wait to see more about this, you know, the, the uh, prototype. I can't wait to see, you know, I've been excited about this Tesla bot ever since AI day. And uh, um, so, you know, but that could be years away from production and delivery, you know, so, uh, but it's certainly science fiction, you know, coming to reality, you know, it's, it's exciting. Full self-driving near term, you know, that's more of a near term catalyst, you know, later this year or next year, we think it'll play a big part in the financials of Tesla. So, yeah, I mean, I think the total addressable market for Tesla is expanding. It's a one trillion market cap company approximately. So, you know, the chances of it going up, you know, three, five or 10 X, you know, um, you need those things to really come to fruition. Right. Um, and uh, it could take some time for the bot, for example. Um, but other stocks that we look at, you know, have smaller market caps, like, you know, Lemonade's around 2 billion market cap or whatever. And we think that could go to, you know, three, five, 10 X much quicker than Tesla, for example. But, you know, from a safety perspective, like what we think is most of a sure thing, Tesla obviously seems like most of more of a sure thing to us. Um, but, you know, we, we try to take risks where we think there's a, a good skew and the risk reward and uh, weigh it appropriately in our portfolio. Matt, anything else you kind of want to add? Yeah, I mean, we were basically just having this this conversation yesterday. Um, you know, I think right now the only thing I would add is like Optimus is probably not going to get much market credit in the next twelve months, say. Um, yeah. And uh, in the event of like a, a market downturn, so let's say we're we're wrong on macro and macro like drastically deteriorates this year, I think even in that scenario, Tesla is probably uh, the safest name in the portfolio just because they've got you know current year earnings, which can kind of gird valuation to a, a certain extent. Um, you know, whereas, you know, Roblox, Lemonade, uh, Rocket Lab are, you know, they're, they're more story stocks. Um, so we, I think we've been looking at things in that light a little bit more and saying, okay, you know, there's a little bit of a safety element, but there still is that kind of, you know, long-term 10X potential. Um, 
but if if we're right, then then some of the other names, the, the kind of story stocks which have been hit harder than Tesla, maybe they have more opportunity to rebound as well. So, um, you know, there's it's a little bit of that risk reward trade off as well. But I think across the kind of uh, distribution of, of possible outcomes that we see in the market, I think Tesla does seem to have emerged as, as even higher conviction name, uh, if that's even possible. Next question from Jay Kimmo 11 on YouTube. Do you think the Fed will prop up the markets through summer because of midterm elections in the U.S.? And then after November, the interest rate hikes will begin. That's certainly possible. I mean, if the market um, continues to kind of, you know, come down and we're like on the on the cusp of a recession in the market, a, bull, a bear market, you know, uh, if you know, if that if that happens this month going into their next meeting, you know, I could see strong signaling to kind of push back um, interest rate hikes in fear of, you know, sending the the stock market into a deeper bear market or a recession. You know, there's certain like as much as, you know, you want to think that the chairman Powell and his team are like n neutral completely on politics and, and election cycles. Um, I think that's naive. To, to believe that's true. I think uh, there is some, whether it's uh, said or unsaid, I believe there is some influence on, on some things with what they do. You know, they don't want to, uh, you know, they don't want to crash the market anyway, but especially in an election year where like, you know, um, tons of Congress folks are being voted in or out, you know, Democrats or Republicans, you know, I, I don't know if they want to be the per be you know be res feel responsible for swaying election results by crashing the markets but they also don't want to crash the markets into a bear market anyway so it's possible um that they might hold off i don't know if it's probable but i think it's certainly a scenario to consider yeah i might disagree with you on that a little bit actually i'm at um Okay. You know, like Powell came into office, you know, during the Trump administration and, you know, was kind of stuck around through through Biden administration. Um, and, and I think he's been mostly apolitical. And, and if you look at the Fed's actual stated mandates, you know, it's, it's to, um, you know, maximize employment and uh, keep inflation kind of within reasonable levels. Um, and so I think right now, uh, Jerome Powell's uh, statements or sentiment seems to be that inflation risk is very real. And so you need, kind of need to increase interest rates to um, kind of get that under uh, um, under wraps a little bit. Um, you know, they, they don't have a mandate to yeah, kind of like um, keep the stock market at, at high levels or anything like that. Um, I, I think they I, I would agree they, they do take that into consideration. Like you don't want to just like raise rates and like see the, the Dow or the S&P like get cut in half. Um, so it, it, I'm sure even though it's not a technical mandate of theirs, I'm sure they, they kind of take that into consideration. Um, but to me, I, I, I kind of have trouble seeing that, you know, there's there's kind of like some election based thing where they want to see a certain kind of political outcome. And so they're going to prop up the economy, you know, until that happens and then kind of drastically uh, change course. I, I don't think there's there's much kind of history for that sort of behavior and, and the fact that you know powell's been in there over two administrations kind of makes me think he'd, he'd avoid that sort of thing yeah yeah i mean you can just you know i think you know the i just look back to when he, he had to meet with uh biden a few months back when they were considering another chairman you know it just seemed you know 
kind of conspicuous that he met with Biden and and it was able to keep his job, but at the same time turned very hawkish, very suddenly, abruptly, <laughs> you know, and, and that just to me seemed like more than a coincidence. But um, I'm not saying that's the only reason he turned very hawkish. You know, inflation numbers have been, you know, creeping into people's minds and it's certainly there. But he'd been saying it's transient up to that point. And I do think there's some element of political influence, um, you know, whether they want to admit it or not, uh, just it's part of the part of the game he's in uh trying to maintain his hold on to his seat as fed chairman and such so yeah i mean i i i hope what you're saying is true that there that he sticks by his mandate you know only or primarily but i do fear that there is some kind of uh political um influence going on so who knows but you know <laughs> we can we can disagree it's okay <laughs> it's healthy it's healthy yeah so from jonas allen What's your take on Peru Saxena's view that we've still got about 15% downward pressure to the go to the indexes indices? He's been spot on so far throughout his whole downturn. Curious to hear your thoughts. You know, I, I did hear his interview on Dave Lee's um, uh, channel a while back, but I was really thrown off with all the technical analysis uh, that he really seems to favor. You know, I, when people talk a lot about that, that's just so far from my spectrum of investing, um, you know, practice, you know, using that type of technical analysis. I mean, not saying, I, I think it's, I think it's too much like astrology. You know, I, I just, I, everything's always different. You know, um, the future can sometimes rhyme with the past, but, uh, it, it, you know, when it comes to stock markets in particular, the movement of stock markets, it's just very complicated. And yeah, I don't know. I, I I'm not a, a fan of, uh, you know, of technical analysis, not that the guy Peru, he seems very smart. seems like he's accomplished a lot. Um, but there are going to be some technical analysis folks that seem to get it right a lot because they've been lucky, you know, um, just like the, the old, uh, you know, boiler room stock picking thing, you know, they send a letter out to a hundred people to buy this stock and a hundred people to sell, to buy this stock and they're right. And then they, you know, there's going to be some people that kind of through, you know, just being lucky over time are going to seem like they know the markets through their technical analysis, but the vast majority of folks, I think, uh, get it wrong a lot too. So I don't know. Any thoughts? Ben? Yeah, I, I do tend to, to agree with you on technical analysis. I mean, I, I just think back to like, you know, January 4th when we had that huge rally, rally on the Tesla, like production and delivery numbers. And like, I was looking at a lot of the people who do technical analysis on Tesla out there, and they're all saying like, oh, like, we've got a great support level at like 1050 and the next resistance is like yeah. 1225 or whatever. And like, yeah. like, I like dumped right through all these so like so-called support levels and everything. And like, you know, not yeah. to say there's there's no validity in technical analysis, because yeah. I think there's, you know, there, there's some, but uh, to me, to, to use that as like a, a reliable kind of to, to beat markets. I don't think that happens to any, <laughs> any great degree. So, yeah. you know, my, my take is I'd rather be invested in, you know, a company that will rather than try to like perfectly time the 15% bottom, I'd rather, you know, stick with the company through that 15% drawdown, if that even is right. And uh, stick around through like the 10 X upside that we see in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, layer in some, some use of derivatives when, when we think there's kind of near term catalyst to accelerate those returns. To me, that's a much more attractive play than like, I'm going to go all cash until we get like to, 
yeah. you know, minus 15%, then I'll like redeploy it and magically get the, the up, like all the, the upturn that pe people just don't get that right very often or very consistently. Yeah, I should consistently. Say. Yeah. And for every technical analysis kind of rules based technical analysis person that, you know, seems right. There's 10 that we've forgotten about that, you know, we're putting themselves <laughs> out there. Yeah. So just, that's what it seems like to me. So anyway, let's, let's go to the next question here from Farzad. Hey, Farzad, how are you, man? I saw your, your chats uh, recently with Steve Mark Ryan. That was really, really good. Uh, Farzad has his own YouTube channel, by the way, if anyone doesn't know, he's doing really well with that. All right. So do you think Tesla being upgraded to investment grade is a legitimate catalyst? Chances that it's already priced in based on obvious cash flow generation, both short and long term. Um, I mean, I think it's a, I think when Tesla gets upgraded next uh, to be like investment grade, I think that opens the door for a number of, you know, uh, traditional dino Wall Street funds, you know, 40 Act fund, 19 Investment Act, 1940 funds, like mutual funds and such that, you know, maybe some, a lot of them are, have rules baked into their prospectus that they're only allowed to invest in investment grade level companies or something like that. And so there's probably, you know, portfolio managers at those, some decision makers at those firms that would love to buy Tesla, but they just can't because of rules. And now they'll have that, that, that will be gone. And they could, I think it is a legitimate catalyst potential and I don't think it's baked in. So, you know, whether it kicks the stock up a couple notches really quickly, like the next day, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I, I would say for the next few months after the investment grade uh, upgrade, then I think, that's to me that that's it could be a bullish indicator on the stock for the next few months what do you think man yeah I, I mean i could rant on this for a, a while and i think i actually have done that recently just about how ridiculous the credit ratings are for, for tesla um mm -hmm. but um yeah i do think it could be a catalyst like i don't think it would be anything approaching the territory of s p 500 inclusion but i do think it could uh kind of provide some incremental um you know like momentum as, as a couple you know larger institutions uh you know put like a two percent allocation in there or something like that I, I think that could certainly help um but uh yeah I, I think it's to me it's it's part of like a broader conversation of like how mainstream will tesla get because even within a yeah. lot of traditional institutions it's it's you know still viewed with a high degree of skepticism like oh like well they're already a trillion dollar valuation Clearly, they can't go up from here, or there's like maybe that's <laughs> like 1.4. But like people just have this like mental model of, of what's possible in their head, and it's it's very limiting, and it's a, it's a limiting way of looking at it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Farzad, though, loved your your interview with Stephen Mark Ryan as well. So everyone yeah. check out his stuff if you haven't already. Yeah. <clears throat> and the last question. Let's do one more question. Let's see here. Um, from Deadly Soul 007. Oh, I like that name. Ooh, All right. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> is full self-driving adoption enough for nutty financials or does robotaxi need to happen? If so, what is the critical mass of Tesla's per capita to allow for robotaxi to operate? Hmm. I don't know. Matt, you have any, any thoughts on this one? Yeah. Um, Dave Lee actually did like a really good kind of visual of like the step changes of like, like just FSD as like an option kind of gets to like really good financials and then robo taxis gets to nutty financials. And then like, um, <laughs> like to the, the Tesla bot Optimus subprime gets to like, just like mind blowing, like tens of trillions, like a, a potential, um, financials. So I, I do think there's that general framework seems about right. Like, 
uh, when, when I'm doing some modeling, it's like, okay, you can, you can have like, call it two to four X, um, maybe like one and a half to, to four X increase in like financials just on the back of FSD absent like robo taxis. So kind of like I was saying earlier, if you, you double the profitability per vehicle, if, if you get, you know, um, full adoption of full self-driving. So like, that's a huge, huge lever. Uh, but then if you if you both double the price of full self-driving and you get to a full adoption, then that's like, you know, a 4X. So that's, you know, you, you can't charge like $100,000 for full self-driving without solving like autonomy and making robo-taxis a reality because nobody's going to pay that much for just a convenience feature. But you can probably charge 25000 and maybe it's like a 50% take rate or something like that. So, so I think... Um, I think to get to really nutty financials where, where you're talking about like, not like a 50 to hundred percent increase in like earnings per share say, um, but like, like 10 X potential um, in, in profitability and like, you know, tens of billions of, of cash flow uh, per quarter. That's when you, you really do need um, autonomous, like autonomous robo taxis. Um, so it's kind of nice because there's like a, like a step change there where it's like maybe the, the stock price will start to reflect an increase in take rate, you know, once it becomes clear that, you know, the, the software is getting that good. And then at that point, once more people see it, then they'll start giving a little bit of credit for robo taxi capability. So I think that the stock yeah. will, there, there's a good chance the stock kind of um, recognizes this stuff ahead of your actual implementation. Um, but in terms of like backward looking financial statements, um, it's going to be, I really do think it's going to be nutty because I was coming to the same conclusion and you can hear James Dalma talk about it. Like if you just look at the numbers of like the profitability and, and like the increase in utility that it's going to offer and, and like how much uh, cost saving it's going to enable, it will uh, like by its very nature, encourage um, a high, like a high uptake rate and a high degree of utilization on, on like the Tesla network, just because it's going to be so much cheaper to operate than anything else out there. Um, and when you run those financials in great detail, the results really are nutty. Like <laughs> I, I've got this model I, and it's without like the most nutty, um, assumptions possible. You're, I, I'm still coming up with like two to $400 billion in, in like EBITDA in, by, by wow. the end of the decade. So it's like, if, if they're doing that, then what do you, you apply like a 20 or 40 EBITDA multiple to that? It's like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a nutty share price implication. Yeah, um, but it's not even the most bullish case. So, uh, but in terms of like Tesla's per capita, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you clearly need if you're going to be utilizing the vehicles like four x more than the like, current vehicles are. That would imply roughly that you know there's um, like a, a 25 percent of the vehicles out there today would be needed in the long term. But that whole transition will take some time. Yeah, uh, Emmett, do you have any thoughts? No, thanks for taking on most of the uh, talking today, Matt. Just sorry, guys. I've been under the weather with the Omnicron, just getting over it. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, be back next week and on our live stream again. And hopefully, uh, macro market hasn't capitulated again by that time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. So uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening, and uh, we'll 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 this will be recorded on our YouTube live channel and and so forth.